are in this series called The King and His Cross, and we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we're running through Luke looking at these two themes, really, of the kingdom of God and the cross of Jesus, and we're seeing how they work together. And so this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at what I'm calling the cries of the kingdom, the cries of the kingdom, that this is a a series of stories, in a way, about crying, and the kingdom belongs to the people who cry. There are so there, as we read this, we're going to see five stories, which are, you know, five distinct units in the chapter. We're going to read the whole thing. And in each five, each of those five, there is a contrast between two people or groups of people. There is a widow and a judge. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. There's a group of children and a group of disciples. There's two rich young rulers. And there is a blind man and a crowd. And there is a contrast in each of those stories And in each case, the kingdom belongs to the person who cries. So this is a a message really about the way in which our crying out to God and our, not just in prayer, but actually in grief or in need, is answered by God. And that the kingdom belongs to people who are desperately in need of him. And so we're going to read Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she won't wear me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what this unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child won't enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when he heard these things, He became sad 
for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, and who can be saved then? But he said, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is not one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who won't receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus stopped. And commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of God. This chapter is a description of the people who inherit the kingdom and the people who don't. And it's made up of five stories, as you see, each one of which contains a contrast between two types of people and the kingdom belongs to the people who cry. Right? So there is a widow and a judge in verses 1 to 8. The widow cries out for justice, give me justice against my adversary, and the judge doesn't care at all. There's a widow and a judge, and it's about justice. Then there's a Pharisee and a tax collector, verses 9 to 14. The tax collector cries out for forgiveness, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and the Pharisee doesn't think he's got anything to be forgiven for. There's a group of infants and a group of disciples. Now, to be fair, in this one, we're not actually told that the infants cried. But my experience is that if you get a bunch of infants together, at least some of them do. But the point is that they, are, they represent the kind of needy, desperate person who is so dependent on other people that they cry all the time, even if we're not specifically told that. But this is a story about people who are in desperate need all the time. They are babies. They are little children. And in contrast, the disciples who don't want them to be there, bothering the master. At the chapter's heart, there are then two rulers. And this is where most of the chapter, in terms of the number of verses, is focused on the contrast between what I'm calling two rich young rulers. There's the one we normally call the rich young ruler. And there is Jesus, who has, is effectively the, the challenge, the contrast between them is that the rich young ruler is not prepared to... He leaves, effectively, leaves behind the kingdom because of his great wealth. And then there's Jesus who leaves behind his great heavenly wealth in order to get the kingdom. And they are contrasted against one another. The two things are next to each other. The rich young ruler who won't give up his money and Jesus who will give up everything to the point of being spat upon, mocked, shamed, flogged, and then executed. And the contrast between the two of them is at the heart of the chapter, and we're going to come back to it at the end, and then the final story, there's a blind man contrasted with the crowd. 
And the blind man is crying out for mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. I mean, he wants healing, right? But his word is, I want mercy from you. And he is contrasted with the crowd who tell him, shh, stop being embarrassing, making a scene. He's obviously English, this character, isn't he? Like, I don't, stop making noise, the crowd. You are being a nuisance. Shut up. I think it's very interesting that Luke has bundled together these five stories that are on the face of it about very different things, right? One's about prayer, one's about how people get justified, one's about children, one's about the cost of discipleship, and one's about a healing story. But Luke has packaged them this way with a theme running right the way through all five of them like a stick of rock, which is that the kingdom belongs to the people who cry. There are There are two kinds of people in the world. I think Luke is showing us by telling the the chapter this way. There are powerful judges, morally upright people like the Pharisee who do everything right and people look at as an upstanding, morally religious person. Pastors, right? You might not, I don't know, you might not think I'm very moral, but one of the problems of being in my job is that I look at myself in the Pharisee and I think, that's the kind of thing that people... People in my job are generally seen as being like that. Yeah, you, you, do, you, you do things right. You live a moral life. So I, the Pharisees are warning to people like me and probably people like some of us who think, yeah, we do make good moral choices. So there's people who have plenty of power and plenty of morality or religious capital, people who are admired in their community, grown-up Christians, adults who understand the way the world really works, socially aware crowds, like the guys who say, oh, no, that's embarrassing. Don't do that. No, no, let's hold it together. Just be a little bit more moderate and measured. Middle class people, you might say. And rich people. That's one group. And on the other hand, you've got the opposite. You've got people who are howling, crying out to God from inside their carry cot, saying, I need justice. I need mercy. I need forgiveness. I need, oh, God, please, will you deliver me? And that contrast, but if people in this group, if you like, are crying out, some of them are, socially awkward. Some of them are impoverished. Some of them have got disabilities. And they are howling to God. And then Jesus says, and the kingdom belongs to these people. The kingdom belongs to the people who cry. The kingdom belongs to the people who humble themselves that they might be exalted, not to the ones who exalt themselves and end up being humbled. The first group has got it together. Right? We understand the way the world is. Shh. Oh, no need for any of that. It's all going to be fine. The second group are a mess, pleading for justice, crying out for mercy. And Jesus says, the kingdom belongs to these people. The kingdom belongs to those who cry. Jesus said it himself, doesn't he? Earlier in this gospel, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Mary said it in the Magnificat, before Jesus was even born. He has thrown down the mighty from their seat and has exalted the humble and meek. He's filled the hungry with good things but he sent the rich away empty. It's a warning and a challenge to those of us who have lots, but it's also a wonderful, wonderful encouragement for those of us who are in tears in our circumstances, season of life, or just our need for God, for whatever kind of reason. And that great flipping of the world upside down, the upside down kingdom, you could call it, is what a lot of Christianity's fiercest opponents have most hated about it. So one of the things I like to do is to read up on why people in different generations have objected to or hated Christianity. And one of the funny things you find out about it is that people in every generation dislike Christianity for different reasons. 
In fact, sometimes the reasons why people dislike Christianity now are the opposite of the reason why people disliked Christianity 100 years ago and 200 years before that and so on. And one of the things that you notice when you read on these things, why it is that people who don't like Christianity don't like it, is because of this exact phenomenon that Christianity turns the moral framework of the world upside down and it puts, in the eyes of many critics, the wrong people on top. Right? That's what a lot of people haven't liked about it. So the first, probably, I think historically speaking, the first major critic of Christianity uh, in the days of the Roman Empire was a man called Celsus, and he wrote a lengthy tract explaining why Christianity was contemptible and should be despised and a lot of nonsense. And one of the things that Celsus hated about Christians and Christianity was the way he thought that they basically had structured religion that was only attractive to and could only possibly be believed by slaves, women, and children. Would never be taken seriously by a morally respectable, educated, classy guy like him. And so he's, this is one excerpt from what he said. It is only foolish and low individuals and, pe and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the divine word wished to make converts. This thing is disgusting. This is awful. This is a terrible thing because it's only attracting the absolute low-life scum of the Roman Empire. Slaves, women, children. I know, I'm sorry, because most of us probably find ourselves fitting into one of those categories. But this is what he dislikes about Christianity. He said, this is ridiculous. This is the kind of thing that only scum would pursue, in his view. People who are devoid of perception, can't even think properly. That's where Christianity gets its converts. Ugh. Now, he was given a pretty strong rebuttal by the North African church father, Oregon of Alexandria, who's a bit of a, you know, he's a bit of a boy, he's really great. And anyway, he writes this very long response to everything Celsus says. And one of the things he says, I like it, in response to this point, he says, truly, it's no evil to have been educated, for education is the way to virtue. But to rank those among the number of the educated who hold erroneous opinions is what even the wise men among the Greeks wouldn't do. As in, it's fine being educated, education's good. Education is how a lot of people find Christianity, find Jesus. Wonderful. Yay for education. Oregon's an educated man himself. But let's not start making a list about all of the very educated people who believed incredibly stupid things. Right? Let's not act as if education somehow means that you don't make morally or religiously or spiritually stupid decisions. Because everybody does, and we know that very well. So this, but it's one of the earliest problems with Christianity for people was, I don't like the idea that you have turned the world on its head, and made the wrong people the top of the social pile. You're elevating weakness and a lack of education when really what you should be doing is elevating the right people, people like Celsus. Well, you fast forward 16 centuries, you find the exact same criticism coming from, I think, the most powerful atheist who's spoken against Christianity in the last 200 years. There's a German philosopher by, called Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, who has, by the way, a wonderful moustache, um, whatever you may think of his philosophy. But this is a, I, got it, I disagree with him, right? But this is a fiercely brilliant man. If you read his stuff, he is an incredibly insightful, polymathically bright man who hated Christianity. And the reason he hated Christianity is because, because he said, this is, Christianity is a slave morality. What Christianity does, Nietzsche said, is it takes the slave values of weakness and humility and it tries to turn them into virtues, and makes things like humility a virtue. That's not the way the world is at all, Nietzsche said. The world is made of strength and power. 
And actually what Christianity has done is it's sickened the world by elevating the values of poverty and chastity and humility and put them on the top. And it's a vile thing that is contrary to nature and should never have been done, and that's why Christianity is a plague. Right? He wrote this. Supposing that the abused, the oppressed, the suffering, the unemancipated, the weary, and those uncertain of themselves should moralize. It's here that sympathy, the kind helping hand, the warm heart, patience, diligence, humility, and friendliness attain to honor. <laughs> you might read that and think, that sounds great. But the point is, Nietzsche is saying, that is what's wrong with you people is you have elevated the wrong sorts of values. And both of these men, Celsus, Nietzsche, and many others actually, hated Christianity for the same things. But in many ways, they were absolutely right. They were right. Christianity does exactly what they are accusing it of doing. It does elevate completely the wrong sorts of people in their eyes. It does turn the values of the world upside down. The kingdom is upside down, where if you... Green means go, red means stop, right? These are, these are the people that are doing well in the world, and these are the people who aren't. And these are the people on top in almost every society, and these are the people who aren't. And Christianity just does that. It just says he has thrown down the mighty from their seat and exalted the humble and meek. The whole thing's upside down. Nietzsche is right. Celsus is right. I, think they, I totally don't want to live in their moral world, but they're right about what Christianity is. The kingdom belongs to the people who cry. Now, notice that is not the same thing as saying that all social relationships are about power and privilege, right? That's what some people in our society would hear me as saying, probably, and that the idea is the world is made up of people with power and of people who are oppressed, and that moral authority belongs to the powerless people. That, that's not quite what Jesus is doing in this chapter, but partly because of our society's Christian roots, you'll hear people saying that and think if you go to university you're swimming in that all the time if you're on twitter you'll probably see it all the time and some people think that's what jesus is teaching it's all about power that's not really that's not the main issue jesus has got in 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 his mind as he's teaching this stuff if you read the chapter thinking what is the common thread here between the if you like the green people and the red people the people at the top and the people at the bottom the main thread is not power or privilege the main thread is pride that's the problem with the people who, have, who Jesus is going to turn upside down. He said the main problem is pride. So I want to illustrate the difference between, you know, otherwise people think this is all about powerful people being thrown down and powerless people being hurt. Well, it overlaps very closely with that, but the real heart issue is one of pride, not of having privileges, if you like. Here's the difference. Two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I was in India. I was preaching in a church in Mumbai, and two of us as pastors from the church went out and we spoke at different sites in a congregation, various congregations in Mumbai, and, it, and I feel quite aware when I'm in India of the fact that I am basically a physical embodiment of the British Empire fast-forwarded 80 years. Like, my, both of my grandfathers were colonials, they were both born in, one was born in Sri Lanka, one was born in India, a sort of mixture of missionary great-grandparents and the surveyor general of Sri Lanka, and, you know, kind of proper I'm, my ancestors are people with the big hats who drew lines on maps and took people's countries so i'm quite aware of it when i walk into a place like that and i'm talking to indians and thinking wow there, there is a i'm carrying a lot of baggage here and you are getting over a lot even to listen to me preaching anyway i've preached this message it's nothing to do with that it's all about healing and, and acts but at the end of the message a man comes up to me and he said something very interesting that i found quite helped me on this theme 
And he, he'd obviously, as we began talking, I thought, you've obviously had challenges handling people like me in your, in your past, and I can totally understand why. But he said to me, thank you so much for your message. He said, I've never met a Britisher who wasn't a snob. That's what he said. <laughs> now, I, I was getting used to the word Britisher in the first place. I'd not been to India before, so I was hearing that for the first time. And, and I kind of wanted, a, part of me wanted to go, there's lots of them. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to hear it. And, think, and it was really helpful for me, to, because as he talked, I realized what he was saying was, I can get over the history of privilege and power and all that. But what I can't abide is pride. That's actually what I find objectionable when I've met British people before. It's not that this happened 100 years ago. It's that they're now living in the same kind of we-own-the-world kind of way. And I just want to say, as we're talking, and I've heard you preaching, it is wonderful to see that we are both sinners in need of mercy from a gracious God, rather than you coming in here like you own the place. And it helped me disentangle. Just as I was thinking about this message, I thought, that's helped me unbundle the realities of historical power, which is a real thing, obviously, but unbundling that from the pride, which is actually the heart condition that Jesus is identifying in this passage over and over again. And if you read through the stories with that in mind, you'll see that the, what all of the unfavorable characters, all the green people have in common in this story is not their power. Actually, at least one of the red people is very rich. The, pro, the challenge, what, what Jesus is challenging, is actually the pride. So, the judge, right? The problem with the judge is not that he's got power. It's that he doesn't fear God or respect people. And even then, he still gives justice to the widow. The problem with the Pharisee is not that he's got lots of worldly power. In fact, Pharisees didn't, really. Pharisees were not very influential people in many ways. They had, a, they had influence that was kind of what you might call soft power, but they're not wealthy, top-of-the-tree kind of people. That's more like the Sadducees. The problem with the rich young ruler isn't that he's got money, it's that he won't give up his money for the sake of the kingdom. And by the way, the tax collector has a lot of money. The one who gets justified, he's very rich. But he, and so Zacchaeus, when we get to chapter 19. So Jesus is not saying rich people never get it, but he's saying what they have to do that makes it so difficult is they have to humble themselves, and that's much harder if you're a rich person. Even the disciples seem to be afflicted with pride. So the children, little babies come up and say, get rid of them, shh, it's embarrassing, get out of the way. And they rebuke the, the children or the parents using the same word rebuke as the crowd used to the blind man. Shh, get out of here, stop making a scene. The, what, if you like, the, the, the people at the top have in common is pride. And what the people at the bottom have in common is humility. Not necessarily being oppressed, as I say, the tax collector's not, he's a very rich guy. But what they have in common is their humility, the fact that they are prepared to cry out to God in need for something from him. So the widow gets justice, not because she's a widow, but because she cries out to God day and night. The tax collector, because of this story, we think of tax collectors as kind of groveling lowlifes, probably, because, that's what, because we're so used to the Bible. If you know the Bible, that's how you think about them. But actually, the tax collector, would the closest equivalent, I suppose, would be if you're around at the time of the financial crash in 2008, the way that people in our country would refer to greedy bankers. Yeah? In fact, if you were a banker, some of us in this room were bankers in 2008, you probably felt like you didn't want to admit to it sometimes. Because people are like, oh, you're, the respons you're, respons you're a rich, wealthy person who has got rich by doing something bad to other people. That's the, that was the public view, right? And that's how tax collectors were thought about in this day. So this is not an example of like a really 
humble person in their station in life. This is a very powerful, wealthy person who has nevertheless got to the point of humbling himself and therefore Jesus commends him and sends him on his way justified. Likewise, the children who come to Jesus. That Jesus says you've got to be like a child. He doesn't mean you've got to get younger. What on earth is that? What am I supposed to do if that's what they're teaching? No, the point is he's saying, no, you need to humble yourself and become as dependent as this little child if you're going to receive the kingdom. And the blind man gets healed because he ignores the shushing of the crowd and cries out for mercy. So in some ways, do you see that these people who have been lifted up in these stories, what they have in common is not their station in life. It's the fact that they humble themselves and cry out to God for justice or mercy or just independency or for forgiveness. You and I don't need to be oppressed to inherit the kingdom. Praise God, because lots of us are not. But what we do all need to do is to humble ourselves before God. For everybody who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom belongs to those who cry. You might be a poor widow. You might be a rich tax collector, greedy banker. You might be a baby. You might be an adult who can't see. But you are, we are required to humble ourselves and cry out to God, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when we do, he always does. He always stops. He always says, what a, okay, somebody was calling out for mercy. Where are they? Who is that? Come here. That's what he always does. He stops and he welcomes and includes and he gives justice to the widow and he gives forgiveness for the sinner and he gives mercy to the blind man and he does all of those things because of the cross which is at the center of the chapter in verses 32 to 33. He, speaking about himself, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So our cries to God, as we humble ourselves, are met by the cry of the God who humbled himself, went to the cross, and from the cross cried out. So we cry out like this widow. We cry out for justice. And our cry is echoed by the cry of the crucified Christ. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see what he's doing? From the cross, he is crying out too. And he's crying out for the kind of vindication that the widow wants as well. Our cry for forgiveness, like the tax collector, beating our chest and going, Jesus, please forgive me. Lord, have mercy. Is answered by the cry of the crucified Christ on the cross. Father, would you forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? Our cry of dependency and utter vulnerability and need, bringing nothing with us, like a little baby crying out for milk, is met by the cry of the crucified Christ on the cross. I'm thirsty. It's because God in flesh has learned and known what it is to need other people to meet his needs, that he's able to help you when you have needs and come to him with them. And our cry for mercy like this blind man, son of David, please have mercy on me, is answered by the cry of the crucified Christ from the cross. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Our cry for mercy has been met by the one who cried from the cross. But there's one final cry that comes from the cross 
It's a victory cry that guarantees that all of the other cries will be answered, that all of the other things that we call out to God for and wail on God for will actually be provided. Now, you know what that victory cry is, don't you? It is finished. Because he humbled himself and was shamed and mocked and spat upon and crushed, he has been highly exalted. And now he invites those who would also humble themselves to come to his table and receive gifts from him. Those of us who would come to him and say, Lord, I need mercy, he'd say, here's mercy. Those who would say, I need justice, I need forgiveness. I'm just in need, I'm thirsty. And Jesus would say, come to me, eat, drink. This is my flesh, my body broken for you. This is my blood spilt for you. Receive these things as gifts. Oh, empty-handed people who are crying out for God to help them. And as you take them, I will feed you and restore you and answer the cries of your heart in your time of need. So what is, we're going to invite, we're going to come and share the Lord's Supper in a moment. We've got tables around the room in which we do that with bread and we use juice in this church. And we just love to invite you, whatever kind of church background you're from, if you are a repentant believer in Jesus, to come and join us. Right? What I mean by that is, if you're a believer in Jesus, you trust in him, then you're repentant for your sins. You say, I've, actually, I'm leaving my sin behind. If you, so if you're sitting here going, oh, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm not repentant of that. There's this whole area of my life God can't have. Or, actually, I don't believe in Jesus at all. We'd ask you to sit this one out, but there'll be other people in the room who are sitting it out as well, because we've always got lots of guests with us. This is something we do for Christians. But if you're for a Christian from another kind of church, you say, I'm a repentant believer, we'd love you to come and join us at the Lord's Supper. And so what I want to do is I'm going to lead us in a prayer. The band will come out. I wonder, could we stand together? Just, going to lead, just pray a prayer for us that the Anglicans use, which really helps me connect what we do when we come to the Lord's Supper with the mercy of God and the cry we have for him to help us. And then when we've done that, Andy will just lead us through the, the practical steps of going to the table. But let's, let me pray for us. And I wonder if you can make this prayer your own if you're a follower of Jesus. We do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercy. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, as we eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed by his most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen.